Hi, I'm Terry, Instagram's sassy sober mum. Welcome to my podcast, Sober Stories from Everyday People, bringing you stories from people just like you and I. The aim of this podcast is to share our experiences with drinking and how we got and stayed successfully sober. got to the point where you're really ready to stop drinking can you admit hand on your heart that you cannot moderate and there is no point forcing yourself around and around the ferris wheel do you want to get sober but don't know where to start or do you wish that you could get some positive results this time in my private membership group thrive you will find the recipe to get and stay successfully sober thrive offers wonderful support guidance on how to start how to get past specific challenges and it also includes weekly zoom meetings there are many people that have joined thrive on day one and now they're celebrating milestones they've never achieved before visit www.sassysobermum.com thrive for more info or to sign up hello and welcome to this week's episode of sober stories from everyday people Today, I'm chatting to Pearl, who is in South London, and uh, Pearl's just about to celebrate her next birthday, and she has just celebrated being one year sober, so you've got a lot of big, fun milestones going on in this week, so congratulations, Pearl, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Terry. Um, Super excited. Um, Yeah, it's been a really exciting week. And thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm really excited to get into your story. I can see there's a lot of energy. So we're going to be bouncing off each other, I'm sure. So let's dig into a bit about you. Who's Pearl? And um, tell us about your life with alcohol. Okay, so um, obviously my name is Pearl. I'm 45 years young. Um, I've been married for 20 years to my absolute rock of a husband. Um, He has been my rock from day one, basically. Um, I've got three children, a 20-year-old daughter, a 16-year-old daughter and a 11-year-old son. So um, I am very busy. Um, I'm a football mum. I'm a netball mum. I'm a dog mum. And I am self-employed carer as well. Um, So I look after a couple of people. um, So I'm always backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. So I live a very hectic lifestyle. Um, Yeah. And I would say that if I was to categorise my drinking and put a label on myself, I would say I was a typical grey area drinker um slash binge drinker yeah same as me there's a lot of similarities here we (laughs) i'm 45 yeah years young i never say that i need to start saying that um uh i've been married a year yours 20 years is very impressive but i've also got three kids so um and i was a grey area slash binge drinker so we're like twinnies Pearl, already um so what talk to me about that relationship with alcohol and you know where did it start and how did it develop okay so I feel like this is the bit when I go back to my childhood um and talk about my childhood so basically I grew up on a council estate um we didn't have much money and I was the only child um this is where it gets a little bit complicated so I 
up until the age of about 14, I thought that my mum, who was who was being I was brought up being called called in her mum, um, I found out that she wasn't my mum. And so what happened was we she had a son that didn't live with us and he used to come and visit every Saturday and I thought he was my brother. And it wasn't until one day I was talking to um, my friend and I mentioned that his birthday was in October and obviously my birthday's in January. And she was like, I'll never forget the way she said it. She went, yeah, pal. She went, you can't be your brother. And then I was like, well, what do you mean? And she went, well, do the maths. She was like, you're born in January. And he's born in October. And I was like, yeah. And she went, well, she can't be your mum. And I was like, yeah, but she is. And she was like, no, she can't be. Or he can't be your brother. Something's not right. And as a child, I always had this, you know, when you have that gut feeling in your stomach, like in the pit of your stomach, that something's not right. Yeah. I had that, but I never knew what it was because obviously I was a, I was a child and I just thought I was a bit weird that I was carrying around this feeling inside and and now everything makes sense but to me then none of it made sense and I didn't get on with my stepmom every time my dad wasn't there she would be horrible to me she wasn't a nice person so then I was armed with this information that my friend gave me and I suddenly one day I'll never forget the moment because we were eating sausage and batter and chips. And when I tell this story, I don't know why I always mention that bit because it was so clear as day. Yeah. So we're sitting there and um she said something under her breath about me in the kitchen. And I said, I said under my breath back, I said, Don't call me mum, because you're not my real mum anyway. And she looked at my dad, and then my dad said, and she said to my dad, you should have told her this years ago. And then she oh walked out. God. So I was like, what? Like, oh, God. Oh God. And I didn't expect him to say anything because I thought my mm. friend would be wrong. And back then, we had no Facebook. We had mm. channels one, two, three, and four. There was no internet. I mm. lived, I had no older brothers or sisters. So I lived a very sheltered life, if you like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I, I, so I sat there and he said, Pearl, I'm really sorry. And I said, what? He said, your mum died in a car crash. And I should have told you this years ago, but I just haven't been able to tell you. Oh, my goodness. So I was like totally gobsmacked. You know, I was 14, between the age of 14 or 15. And I was like, okay. So I, obviously I burst into tears. And then I said, well, have you got a photo of her? And he said, no, I don't have any photos. And I said, Okay, so that explains why there's no baby photos of me, because there was never any baby photos. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, they got lost. And I said, okay, where is she buried? He said, I don't know, because her family didn't really like me. And I was like, okay. And then he said, don't ask me anything else. Don't ask me anything else. He said, it's too painful and I can't talk about it. So obviously I was like, okay. So I went into school the next day and I told my friends and they were like, oh, my God, like, yeah. I just rock up to school the next day and go, guess what? The mum who I thought was my mum is not. And my mum yeah. died in a car. Yeah. yeah, it's a big story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But then I, it's very hard to grieve for someone that was never spoken of. So there was no photos of her. There was no stories of her. She didn't exist in my life until that point. And mm. then she was never spoken about again. So for me it was quite easy to just get on with my life. Obviously I cried for a week, a week, maybe if, maybe if not even that, but I cried 
and I just got on with it and um that's when I started rebelling which I didn't realize I was starting to rebel but mm-hmm. everything makes sense only now in sobriety everything makes sense yeah. yeah so um I started going out drinking like most teenagers did at 14 you know going to the park mm-hmm. I remember drinking cans of bloody super tenants like who drinks that mm. like really but loving that feeling of getting completely wasted and yeah. being sick and thinking I didn't care about being sick mm. I never got hangover but I loved that escapism of just getting completely you know out of it mm. so that carried on into my teens um into my teens and then I this was a really weird phase I, I got introduced to this girl she was 22 years old and she had her own place and I started hanging around there and she had two children and she kind of used me as a babysitter. But at the same time, I was around older people. Remember, I was 15, 14, 15, and I was around people that were doing drugs, drinking. So I actually got into that as well. Yeah. Um, and my dad, and because when I was going home and I was, I'd stay, I'd be going at her house and then coming home, and being, this is really bad, by the way. If my kids did this, I would not be happy. Coming home, being sick out of my bedroom window, and then landing on the kitchen window, and oh then God. and then going nuts about it. And but for me, I was like, "What's your problem?" You know, mm-hmm. I didn't see it as a problem. But God bless my dad. I I now see where he was coming from. But I was completely rebelling. But I didn't know. I just didn't know I was doing that. Yeah. I, I started staying at this girl's house a lot. And I wouldn't tell my dad I was coming home. And I started getting in with the wrong crowd. And, um, yeah. And that was all around my GCSE time as well. So I came out of school with no GCSEs. Mm-hmm. I was completely off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad d- did his nut because he adored me so much. But he, he just couldn't control me at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm. but it all came to a head and I did end up coming home and my dad kind of put a stop to it um so then I um just yeah started rebelling um and I just did all of the things that most teenagers did but to the next level you know I loved Mm -hmm. that feeling of just escapism and it, it made me feel like a different person because when I was younger I was really quiet I was um didn't really have many friends at primary school I was probably that weird kid in the corner and then doing the drink and the drugs enabled me to become this person that was yeah. like, yeah, look at me, you know, yeah. I'm the life and soul of the party. So um, that was that. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. No, so then, um, then um, when I got to 19, my dad got diagnosed with cancer. Oh, God. Um, and it was a very quick diagnose, um start to finish so he got diagnosed in the June and he died in the November sorry yeah it was it was really hard because I was already being this sort of messed up teenager Mm. and then I had to deal with that and um how how old were you sorry at that point and I remember my stepmom um calling me saying you need to come to the hospital and she couldn't even tell me herself. And she said, you need to go in there with these two nurses. And it was like a little thing on the ward. And they told me. Mm. And I remember breaking down in tears, going, no, you're lying. You're lying. No, this can't be happening. And um, she, so then I went and spoke to my dad. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And it was a real, he had lung cancer. Um, but he also had a brain tumour. 
Um, so he'd been living with it for years and it had just spread everywhere, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was really hard, the di- like getting diagnosed and finding that out. And at the time, I was with a wrong boyfriend that my dad didn't like. And I still continued to go out of that wrong boyfriend, even though my dad hated him. Mm. And it all just, I just, I just didn't, couldn't deal with it. And I, I loved mm. my dad so much, but I just couldn't talk to him at the time. Um, so then I was there at the house when he died and that was completely horrific, like absolutely horrific. I was there, I watched him change colour, I was with him holding him while he took his last breath. The ambulance people came in and they started saying, shall we resuscitate? And my stepmom was going, no, obviously, because he was terminally ill. But as a young girl, I didn't know all of this terminology. And I'm going, no, no, like, bring him back, bring him back and crying. And then the policeman turned up and then the doctor was there. And I just completely lost it, actually lost it, lost control. I was shaking And I remember going into the garden and I'm just screaming and howling at the top of my voice and falling to my knees and looking up at the sky and then thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, I don't have a mum and I don't have a dad. Mm. What the hell am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I didn't like my stepmom. And I was like, what do I do now? So what did I do? I completely hit that self-destruction button so hard. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I went, well, no, to be honest with you, first of all, I didn't, I took my dad's death so hard. I didn't leave the house. I didn't drink, but I was a chain smoker. I was smoking, smoking. I went from a size 16 down to a size zero because I physically couldn't eat. I could not eat. I didn't get any counseling. I didn't get anything. Um, I just shut myself away in my bedroom. My stepmom did her thing. I did my thing. And it took me six months till I started to go back out again. And then I went out with this new, really slim body. And then I was just like, right, that is it. And I started hitting the clubs, mm. drinking, doing everything else that goes along with that. Yeah. And I just went wild. And then I started working in bars, mm. which was the worst thing that could have mm. happened for me because it was on tap. So lock-ins, all the people that you get in bars as well. But I mm. loved it. I loved working yeah. in bars. Um, but it just all went into that lifestyle that wasn't very good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I feel like, oh, I've got so much to get in. So then yeah, I'm, I know it's all yeah. so, it's all so fascinating and it's very, very heartbreaking. Yeah, well. there is a lot of heartbreaks yeah. in my life. There is a lot. Um, and it still, it gets worse, unfortunately. Anyway, so then I met this boy and, um, we went to work in Spain for a season which was lethal, absolutely lethal. I can lethal. imagine, yeah. It was. Um, he actually finished with me the night before we went and said, by the way, I think I'm going to break up with you because I'm probably going to get with loads of girls when we're out there. This was the night before. We'd booked the tickets and I was like, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> I mean, thanks for that. But it turned out that I ended up working in the bar, the really cool, busy bar, and he ends up working in the cafe in the daytime. Mm. So I was like, <laughs> Yeah. so it was um yeah it was uh that was you got one up on him <laughs> yeah I do definitely but it was complete carnage and that accelerated my drinking into a complete another level again my drinking yeah. just seemed to get more and more and more and I think I was just blocking all of the stuff 
I've been through, especially not, I wouldn't say so much with my mum at this point. It was more to do with the grief for my dad. Yeah. And I just didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I had no other family apart from my stepmom. I had an auntie and uncle, but I wasn't close to them. So when I was in Spain, I felt like no one knows I'm here. Nobody knows I'm here. Like, and to feel like a 19-year-old girl in a foreign country and not, not knowing that nobody knows you're there and nobody to say to you, don't do that, don't do this, mm-hmm. don't, you know, I put myself in some really sticky, sticky situations out mm-hmm. there. I can imagine. Like, really bad situations. Mm-hmm. And I think, what the hell? Like, if that was my daughter now, yeah. I'd be bringing her every minute. We're like checking on her phone like where are you like it just wouldn't happen because I wouldn't allow it to happen but the things that I got myself into I drove into a nightclub once on a bicycle down steps um I must have fallen into a swimming pool or something my dress was completely see-through and I got told about this the next day that I drove into the club down the steps that went on this bike and completely off my trolley, had no recollection of it. I was blackout drunk. And every time I left work, we used to finish, I think the bar closed at like two or three. I never remembered leaving, never, mm-hmm. ever remembered leaving work. And I'd roll in at six in the morning because then I'd go to the club after, completely off it. And then, so then when the season came to the end, I rung my friend that was, who I'm still friends with now, bless her, who sacked me quite a few times. She was my bar manager. <laughs> she sacked me three times, but we're, still, we're best friends. <laughs> oh, those years ago, yeah. Um, yeah, because of my drunkness on the job. So she sacked me three times, but always reemployed me because she loved me so much. <laughs> oh. So I phoned her up from the airport and I was like, I've got no money. I'm coming back. All I've got is a litre bottle of vodka and a litre bottle of Jack Daniels. Can I come and live in above the pub? And she was like, yeah, of course you can. So I just came back and then started doing what everything that I was doing before. Okay, so that was all the main from teens to 20. Yeah. 22, quite, quite, quite a lot of self-destruction going on. Yeah, massive. Un- understandably, though, as well, yeah. right? Because, yeah. yeah, you can, you, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot to cope with. There's a, yeah, lot, of, there's a lot of trauma in there. Yeah, and no one, you know, nobody, I just felt like I was off the radar like nobody helped me but I in a way at that time I thought it was quite cool because I was like yeah look at me I can do whatever I want and nobody can tell me like free spirit almost yeah but it was it wasn't deep down inside you know so then I met my husband um I feel like that's another podcast in itself because that's such a long that's such a long love story it's cute but I'm not going to go into it because it is long so I met him um, then I had my first child and I really settled down then. I really, I wasn't drinking wine then. Wine culture wasn't really about then. I'd have a couple yeah. of Cardi Breezes um, at a weekend and that was it and I was happy. You know, I'd, I'd have my daughter and I, for the first time in my life, I felt really happy and mm. settled that I had yeah. my own child that I could love. Yeah. And I felt really settled. And then things, then... Um, I really felt the urge, once I had my own child, I really felt the urge to try and find my mum's grave. So I had nothing to go on. Um, Let me digress a little bit. Once I found, oh, my God, I've missed out something. I've missed out a major bit. So six months, I need to digress, because six months after my dad died, Mm. um, I had this feeling, like I said, when I was younger, about the pit, the, the feeling in the pit of my stomach. Yeah. I went and knocked on my auntie's door 
And I said, I want to know about my mum. I really feel like I need to know. There's something not right. And she was like, okay. So she said, come in. And then she said, look, your dad swore on his deathbed that no one should ever tell you this. And I went, what? God. And she said, well, I'm really sorry, but as soon as you've asked, I'm going to tell you because I feel like you've got the right to know. And I said, okay. And she went, your mum committed suicide. And I went, what? And she went, I'm really sorry, Pearl, but she 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 went, she gave me three stories because she wasn't sure herself. She said um, she jumped off the top of a building. Um, she was either postnatally depressed or she was on drugs or she was pushed. Um, I don't really know, and that's all I can tell you. And so that's how she and died, I, off of the top of a building? Yeah, like, she falling. did. Oh, my God, that's so yeah. tragic. So, but she couldn't tell me definite, and that information that she gave me just absolutely destroyed me absolutely destroyed me and I remember going back to the guy that I went to Spain with he was smoking a bong at the time and I walked through the front door and I told him he was just like oh sorry you know didn't give me a hug or anything and I remember I got in the bath and I sat in that bath for five hours I sat in a bath for five hours and I just cried and cried and I just blamed myself I just blamed myself like what I must have been so horrible as a baby I must have driven her to it I must have done this and I must have done that and all of this stuff so that's when I I can't believe I missed that bit out but that's when after that I went to Spain and that's when I really really hit it hard yeah yeah so um yeah finding out that your mum's killed herself and that your dad lied to you is quite a massive thing yeah I mean to be to be honest Pearl like I'm like yeah I mean you there's there's quite a few of these situations in your child I mean just having one just having one of those sorts of things could could derail somebody exactly Um, but to have several yeah yeah that's tough that's really tough um, so then, oh, yeah, as I said, I settled down and then I wanted to find my mum's grave. So all I had was her death certificate, which I went and found on my own off a couple of rough dates that my aunt gave me before mm-hmm. I met my husband. Yeah. So then I met my husband. That all happened really fast. We had a child really fast within the first year. And um, so I said to him, I want to find her grave. And I I had a feeling that she might have been buried in Ireland. Um, but my dad didn't same thing he said her family were Irish and that's all he said and that they didn't like him so my husband bless him he was so good he I gave him the death certificate and within two days he had people running down into archive archives you know from all of that time ago yeah and he rung me up and he went Pearl I said what he said I found your mum's grave Oh. oh my god nick i was like i can't believe it and he went guess what it's a 20 minute drive away in the car no yeah and i was like right we're going get home from oh work going so at the time yeah. i couldn't drive and um so we drove there and i remember i bought this bunch of orange flowers because i was and i wrote a card for the first time to my real mum you know i'd always wrote to mum but it weren't my mum before so and i felt like i was gonna hug this grave yeah and when i got there it was the complete opposite I, my husband left me and it was so weird because we pulled up and we just found it straight away. We turned around and it was there. That was freaky. Then did you know, did you know the graveyard? Like had you been driving all your life? No, 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 I didn't. I think it was a a little bit bit out of my way. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know where it was. So I thought I was going to hug this grave and have this massive reunion with this lump of stone. And it wasn't that way at all. Because my daughter at the time was 18 months old. Mm. and that was 
roughly around the time when my mum left me. So my husband said to me, right, I'm going to leave you now. And then he just got in the car and he drove up a little bit to give me some space. And I remember looking at my daughter in the back of the car and I felt pure anger towards this grave. And I just felt so angry because I looked at my daughter and I thought, how could you do that? I couldn't do that to her. How could you do that? And I got so angry and I just said to my husband, well, I want to go now. And I said, I never want to come back here again. So he was like, okay. And then after that, that really sent me into a downward spiral. Um, really did my mental health just really hit rock bottom and I couldn't explain to anyone why I felt so depressed I couldn't explain to anyone the the words and the feelings and everything that was going on in my head I couldn't couldn't get it out but what I did was I drank wine I drank one bottle of wine another bottle of wine another bottle of wine my drinking really went up at that stage um to the point where I had a mental breakdown Mm. and um I tried to kill myself because I felt that the voices in my head were telling me that I needed to be with my mum and that I needed history to repeat itself and that I wasn't a good enough mum for my children at the time um so that happens and then I got taken away in an ambulance and I got put into a crisis house um so it wasn't my finest moment in life not by any means and I don't really like talking about it because I feel like that was such a long time ago but I felt like at some point in my life that would have happened Mm -hmm. and it just did I did not know how to process anything and and that's what it is isn't it that at the end of the day and I I guess we'll come on to obviously where you are now and Mm. um you know everything you've achieved in sobriety and just and just in life to be honest with that kind of bumpy start but that's all it really is isn't it is that you just didn't know how to cope with it and who who does who does know how to cope with that you could come you could come from the best family in the world and still not know how to cope with that sort of stuff like I I just I just hit rock bottom but that was my rock bottom and that that should have made me give up drinking but it didn't so but also like that was the thing that was probably back then making you feel like you could cope you know in a way that was the thing that was sort of saving you obviously it wasn't it was making you feel in the long run it was making you feel worse and making you have all these negative thoughts and and things like that but you you know that would have fixed the problem for you at that time because it would have just switched everything off yeah but um so after that I had psychotherapy for about 12 months um and every time he wanted to finish with me, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to finish. I don't want to finish. Um, and I thought it was helping me. But when I read the report on it, once I got sober, I was like, who is this person? I, it was like I completely blanked it out. And I completely, it was almost like I'd forgotten about the psychotherapy. And when I read the report in my early sobriety, I was like, who is this person? Like, Do you mean who is this person about yourself? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, even... Even though I had all that psychotherapy, none of it went in, but I thought it was, but I wasn't yeah. ready then. I wasn't ready yeah. to feel. I was too young. I was yeah. I, I had I had two young children at the time. And I was just going through the motions, but none of it was working and none of it was going in. And when I got uh, um um sober in the first three months, I looked, I got this box out and I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened to me. Like 
And it was so mad. But at the time, I was going to go, oh, I'm better now. I'm better. Don't want to talk about it. I'm better. And I stopped drinking for a while because my husband's like, there's no way I'm going to let you drink. But no way on earth because of what happened to me. Mm. But as time went on, I convinced him, like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can have some wine. I can do this. Look at me. I'm over it. Who was that person anyway? And I gradually persuaded him that I could drink. And so it just gradually started and started. Mm. And at that time, my husband used to work away a lot. So bearing in mind, I had two young children. Um, so he would work away. And that was like a green light. It was like, yeah, yes. of course. You're on your own. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm on my own. So what yes. I do is I put the kids to bed. Yeah. And I'd have my bottle of wine ready. And I'd drink three quarters of a bottle. And then I'd go to bed. And I'd be like, I'm not drunk. I'm fine. You know, I needed to sleep. So then the next day would come around, there'd be that one glass left at five o'clock. So I'd go, right, I should have that one, I'm cooking the tea. Then I'd go, right, I want another bottle. Right, kids, come on, let's go around to the co-op and get another bottle. And then that, so that's how it went when he was away. And I would green light it and go, well, do you know what? He's not sitting there judging me because my husband's not a big drinker. He's mm. never been a big drinker. I've always been the drinker and I've always encouraged him to drink. Yeah. But, um, he, if he weren't there judging me, because he wouldn't mind if I drank on the weekend, but if he saw me drinking in the week, he'd be like, whoa, there's yeah. something right here. You need to slow down. Like, mm. let's make something right. So, um, so that was my drinking then. Um, and then I had a miscarriage. So this was before my second child. I had a miscarriage at 12 weeks. Mm. Um, and it just felt like I wasn't allowed to talk about it. People mm. were very much like oh, well, you know, you're only 12 weeks, you know. Yeah, but do, do you know, I, I, I feel very passionately about this because I've also had problems with um, fertility and I just feel like I do think that that fertility issues and miscarriage and, and, and stuff like that, yeah. there's a lot of work still to be done yeah, in bringing that to the surface. Yeah, and also not just not just for you uh, or, you know, for the women, but also for the men that... Yeah. People don't ever think about the, the the man or the partner in that situation because it wasn't happening to them. And it it is such a traumatic experience no matter what stage yeah, you are, you are in. Yeah. My, my husband found it really – He's my husband is brilliant. Give him a job to do and he will do it. But he can't talk about his feelings. Like he's a fixer. He loves to fix everything, but he will never talk. Um, so he found it really hard. So he was just like, let's go on holiday. Like, come on, let's go Disneyland and let's do this and – I was yeah. just like, okay, but I just carried on drinking. So yeah. I just numbing and numbing all, all of this stuff. I was just pushing yes. down, pushing down. Yes. And I thought I dealt with the breakdown, but I hadn't. Mm. I hadn't dealt with it at all. I just pretended because none of I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready then. Um and then yeah, But also, then, but also, you know, you say you weren't you weren't ready, but you've had a lifetime of um not being able or not maybe being shown or encouraged to be yeah. open about things so it's completely alien to yeah, just be absolutely. ready to do that isn't it it's just yeah. us going against everything you've ever done exactly so um yeah then my drinking was just mainly from that point on week weekend binge drink drinking um but then sometimes I would go oh it's midweek it's Wednesday get a bottle of wine yes. and then obviously Thursday would come yep. and I'd be like, oh well it's Thursday now and then yeah. it's Friday Saturday yeah. Sunday and then on the way home on a Monday I'll be like oh my god I really need a glass of wine oh yeah. sod it and then sometimes I'd only have like Tuesday and Wednesday off so I'd, I'd, I'd always have like two days off yeah same same but 
But yeah, it was sometimes I'd be really good and just do Thursday to Sunday. Other times I'd only have one or two days off. So that's yes. how my drinking went. That's so exactly the same as me. Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Yes. So now we are on to the pandemic. So the pandemic, um, I was privately caring for somebody who was um, a, such a lovely man. He was. He became a friend. Um, I'm still friends with his um, wife. We're very good friends. And I was more like his personal assistant because he was blind and we were just became best friends. You know, we, mm-hmm. I would tell him my problems and it wasn't caring as in caring that side. It was more just helping him in his day-to-day routine. And he died in the April um, and that really hit me hard. One, I was so close to him. It, that's why I was really upset. And two, obviously I was out of a job as well. And what was everyone else doing in the pandemic? Mm, drinking. Drinking, staying at home. So I was like, I think I had four weeks off. And that was the first bit, the first bit of the pandemic. And I was like, okay, I can drink in the daytime. This is great. And even my husband, who wasn't a big drinker, who isn't a big drinker, was even he started going, oh, yeah, well, I've got nothing to do. I haven't got to go to work. And it was so lovely and hot, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was. Drinking just accelerated. Mm. And then it got to a point where I was like, no, I need to go back to work. I can't just afford not to work. I was working. So they were crying out for people in care homes then. And I went and worked in this care home for a year. And it was the most depressing job I've ever had. I've always worked in care. I've been a carer for the past, I would say, about 10 years. I'm doing home care. And I love it. I love what I do. You know, you can't do my job unless you love it. But going into a care home setting is completely different. And I, um, it was just depressing. I was in the height of the pandemic. I was doing seven hour shifts and then they would go, oh, can you stay another seven hours because this person's off sick with COVID. So then I was doing 14 hour shifts, coming home, still drinking a bottle of red wine because I needed to numb out that day. And then in the height of it, in the in the December, when it was really bad, you were opening doors going, oh, they go, oh, number 10's dead. Oh, number seven's dead, like just treating them as door numbers. And I just, it just wasn't for me. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the way that it was a bit blase about, oh, number 10. Yeah, number 10, she's dead. And I was like, this, I can't do this. This isn't for me. I can't, I can't. So then I think my drinking definitely got worse in the pandemic, 100%, because even when I weren't working, I was planning to get drunk. I was like, I need to get drunk this weekend because I needed to, I was working one weekend on, one weekend off. So those weekends off, I was like, right, that's it. Mm. Drink, 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 drink. So, yeah, so that's where I'm up to. Well, no, then, yeah, so then um, I'd say I noticed it becoming problematic um, because I was rowing with my husband. um, I was ruining, like, family events, like birthday parties and stuff like that. I'd end up storming off and... Just, I didn't know when to stop. And my husband, because he wasn't a big drinker, he'd be like, I don't think you should drink wine tonight. And I'd go, don't tell me what to do. Oh, yeah, I'm exactly like that. You're better when you drink spirits. I go, but I don't like drinking spirits because to me, I like to drink that wine and boom, boom, back, you know, and just down it to get that wine buzz. Yeah. And um, yeah, so then, yeah, so that's where we're up to. Oh. Oh. it's there's so much Pearl I I actually I don't actually know where to start um yeah what um 
what a life up until that point. I mean, yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of, I think the thing for me that really stands out and I, I, I see a lot of myself in you and your story. My story wasn't as tragic, I would say. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities in that there was that kind of childhood trauma, if you like, um, I went off the rails at 14. I got expelled from school. I left with no exams. I carried all through my life the shame of that and those sorts of situations that I got into as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. They really impacted me in terms of the shame that I think I carried. I carried the burden of not feeling good enough um, all all my life. And I was thinking, I, I, I bet that was the same for you, you know, that feeling of you're just not good enough. And that shame just sits, it weighs on you. And and even now, like I would say, even now um, in sobriety, fixing and healing parts of myself for the first time in my life, which I'm sure you are doing and and we will come into, come onto that, but I still carry the weight of those, um, you know those feelings sometimes it's hard to let go of them isn't it it's hard to it's hard to let go of you know well actually no I shouldn't do that because it it won't be good enough or or whatever like there's no real evidence of that stuff but it's such an ingrained pattern that is I think also if with childhood trauma I think you can heal from it and you will have a scar but you will always have that scar. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You can move on and you can get better, but you it will always be with you forever. My That's it. Forever. It doesn't, yeah, I heard this the other week, actually. I was, I was listening to a podcast um, and somebody mentioned that, um, you know, those, tr- the trauma, it never goes away. You, you learn to accept it. Yeah. You learn to live with it. And I thought that's yeah. so true, isn't it? And it's only in sobriety, which we'll get onto in the next bit, that I've um, found out loads. Yeah. loads so, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, talk to me about, um, and by the way, isn't your husband an absolute superstar? Bless him. Oh, I mean, you. you know, he, yeah, I mean, bless he him. <laughs> yeah that's he sounds quite similar to my husband my husband's not a big drinker and um we've been together for five years and I think I was drinking for one and a half of, of those years because I've been I'll be so well I'll be sober four years in April so yeah just over a year um and I was quite good at managing to keep that under a lid I think because we weren't living together in the beginning yeah. But I definitely encouraged him <laughs> to drink more. Yeah, I did. And if I had a bottle, a bottle of wine, I'd go, he'd go, there's four beers. He yeah. goes, I didn't want them. I'd go, well, I'll yeah. just have them. Yeah, just have it, just have it. Yeah. I'd buy him like posh ciders and <laughs> the drinks that he'd like, but like posh versions. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, he, he didn't would... feel like you were on your own then, did no, you? exactly, yeah. yeah. And he and he would, so, you know, he would drink one or two and, you know, to keep me company and, and, and I, but I would always carry on a bit, you know, when he switched to orange squash, yeah, you know, which I used absolutely. to call his, you know, teenage drink. When he switched yeah. to squash, I would be on, you know, getting my third or fourth glass of yeah. wine. And he never said anything. Um, no. He was one of the people in my life, actually, that never said, 
Terry, don't do that. Because I was just like you. When people said, don't do that, I'd be like, no, I'm just going to do it more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how we want to do. But actually, Tom was very good in that he never said anything. And I, fortunately, I kind of came to my own conclusion that I wanted to stop drinking. And I'm so grateful for that. But for your situation, obviously, you've been married for 20 years. Yeah sober for one you must have been through a lot of ups and downs oh god yeah he he, he would tell me don't drink and I'd be like don't tell me not to drink then because I'll drink more and he goes I think you've got a problem I go no I haven't yeah no I think you have and I'd be like don't say that to me yeah back to to a ball you know Um, yes Um, yeah and you know there's a there's a there's obviously that there's a stubbornness in you and I have that same stubbornness (laughs) and I wonder whether that comes from when you do have to sort of fend for yourself or you spend your yeah you spend your teenage years your 20s kind of fending for yourself and do you know being your own boss get making tons of mistakes but essentially you know you get through you do get through life what however that looks you do get through it and then I think it's very difficult to back down and listen to people because you just you've been so used to being the director of your life he only ever had my best interests at heart because yeah, he seen me have a breakdown he seen yeah. me try to take my life so in his eyes he never got that out of his head and I used to that used to really grate on me because I'd be like well I'm better now you can't keep saying that Nick um so yes yeah. so coming on to the bit about how I got sober yeah Yes. Yeah. What did that look like? So talk to me about yes. the day there's, that you woke there's, up. There's a bit of a drama. There's a bit of a drama that was involved with that. So, <laughs> so basically, um, it was a night. My daughter was living with her boyfriend at the time, my older one. And she said, oh, mum, can me and my friends come around to yours for a quiet night in? And it was in January, January the 15th, because I've got sober on the 16th. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I had to take my other daughter to a party, which annoyed me because it was at half eight, the drop off. And I normally I'd already started my, I'm way deep into my wine by then on a Saturday night. Yeah. So it's a bit like, oh, Katie, like, I've got to take her to this party. So then I rushed back <laughs> so I could have half a bottle of wine. And then my daughter's there with her friends and they wanted a quiet night. And so I had to downed this bottle of wine really quickly. I was just like, boom, boom, boom. And then I was annoyed that there was no more wine. So then I started on the pink gin. And then um, my husband could sense that my daughter was getting the hump with me. And he was like, oh, I think you should come to bed and leave them down here. And I was like, no, I want to go to bed. And then I wanted to, like, start a party. And I was like, yes, come on, like, come on, like, getting into, like, party vibes. And my daughter's looking at me, he's going to say, mum, shut up. <laughs> and, and I could sense it. And then I was just like, oh, God. And then I blacked out. I don't remember what happened. But I woke up in my son's bed which often would happen, you know, there'd be a bed swap if one daughter stayed out. I think the other daughter had stayed out. So Jamie was in her bed and then I was in my son's bed. I woke up and I, you know, when you instantly go, oh my God, oh no, like what's happened? Something's happened. The fear. So, yeah. And then I was like, oh, and I'm just lying there in bed. And then I was like, oh, I remember being outside the front of the house and I was like, oh no. And we've got CCTV. So I going back on the cctv and then i see my daughter crying and i'm like oh no no. what's happened so then i come upstairs to our bedroom and i say to my husband oh my god this happened last night telling my version that i thought we just had a bad argument and then he was like oh god i could tell something was going to happen you should listen to me and come to bed bloody blah and then my daughter then rung my husband was like i am so annoyed with mum she really embarrassed me and basically we had a big row and I kicked off and I embarrassed her in front of her in front of her friends, which is out of order. 
And that day, though, it hit me on a different level because she then she then went back to her boyfriend's house, got a cab, and she said to my husband, I don't even want to come in the house to see mum to get my car key. And I just went into a complete meltdown. I wouldn't come out of my bedroom. My husband was saying to me, Pearl, just, you've done worse. Like, just apologise and don't do it again. And I was like... <gasps> Oh my god, I can't. Oh my god, I feel so bad. I feel such like such a bad mum. What am I gonna do? Mm. And I was I was having a panic attack. Mm. It's that shame though again, isn't it? it was, it's the shame. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I can't do this. He's like, Pearl, just come downstairs. We're having a roast. I was like, no, I can't cook a roast. I was in such a meltdown. Oh. And this is the weird bit. So I feel like years before, about probably about three or four years, I I kept trying to moderate in my head, like, oh don't eat drink on the weekends and do this. And I was doing all of this stuff in my head, like, oh, drink water in between wines and none of it was working. Mm. So it, deep down inside, I knew I wasn't happy with my drinking. And I'd already mentioned to a friend, a really close friend, I was like, I don't like my rela- relationship with alcohol. Mm. So all of these things were kind of leading up to this point subconsciously, but I hadn't, I had admitted it to my friend. Uh, I didn't like my relationship with alcohol. Um, so all of these things happened. And then that day I had the app on my Instagram, the Alan Carr book kept flashing up on my Instagram. What a legend. Way. I know the easy way. <laughs> I think I read the slightly different one to you. I read yeah. the easy way to control your drinking, which you nice. then get to the end of the book and realize you can't control. There's no such thing as controlling your drinking. Uh, right. It's exact, I think it's more or less the same. Yeah. It's slightly different. Um, so that came up and then I went downstairs and I, my daughter came and got her car key and she was like mum you're so out of order didn't want to talk to me and I was just crying my eyes out Mm -hmm. went back upstairs oh my god I can't cope and then I was like right I thought this is it I've got to give up drinking so Mm -hmm. I came back downstairs again I've read all the reviews well not all of them because there's millions of reviews on Amazon (laughs) I read loads of enough yeah I read enough and I was like right that is it that is it so I came downstairs I went to myself I'm gonna give up drinking I'm going teetotal he went what is this your birth like in five days and I went yeah and he went but you've got to and I went he went no but you're not going to not drink on your birthday Pearl and I was like no I have to do it now I've made up my mind I'm going to give up drinking and I didn't drink from that point even when even when he said you could drink in the book I was like no way because of what had happened with the argument and and that is how I essentially (sighs) stopped drinking I read that book within three days I was like oh I need to get to the Uh, end end." I had made up my mind that I couldn't do it. And my husband said to me, I bet you within, if, if you're sober in six months, I'll buy, buy you a pair of Alexander McQueen trainers. I don't know if you've seen them. Oh, they're like really funky trainers, which I, I like. And indeed, he ended up buying me the trainers because wow. I've got six months. Really? So. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> That's um, I, yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the converted here. Alan Carr, <laughs> the, yeah. the easy way for women to stop drinking was the first book that I read in sobriety but what happened to you happened to me something clicked on that day and I try to explain this to people as well well people that reach out to me or uh, in my in my thrive group I try to explain that actually the key to unlocking the door is to truly accept that you cannot moderate and I think there are a lot of people that go into sobriety feeling very hopeful uh, feeling desperation for sure, yeah. uh, wanting sobriety, but maybe they aren't even aware of the fact that actually lurking in the depths, there is still that tiny bit of hope that they might be able to just control their drinking. Yeah. And so, so it doesn't me, work. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't work. even plan to give up drinking. If you'd have told me that night before, yeah. would you yeah. give up drinking? I'd be like, yes. what? Exactly so the same. Yeah, yeah. That next day, I was like, I cannot do this again. Something clicks. Not, yeah, not drink. I can't drink because I know this will happen again, and I can't yes. let that happen again. Yes, yeah. And yeah. I was the same. I think they call that spontaneous sobriety, just because we all love a label, don't we? But, um, <laughs> oh, you know, they call <laughs> they call it spontaneous sobriety, and it was the same for me as well. I was exactly the same as you. I definitely had plenty of warning signs over the years. I definitely knew somewhere deep down that drinking was going to destroy my life, and yeah, that same. I wouldn't be happy and. And I, I really, and I think the older that I got as well, for me, we're the same age, so maybe you uh, relate to this, but I think when I got to 40, I definitely started questioning things like long-term health issues and, uh, you know, my I've said on this podcast a few times, my mum died of breast cancer and I do think that her lifestyle was a factor in that. I'm not saying it caused it, but it was certainly a factor and so I really worried about things like that and I just but it wasn't the night before I stopped drinking I was going hard you know go hard yeah. or go home and, <laughs> and and I thought I was having a great time and it was only when I woke up the next day that shame that overwhelming fear that yeah. just it's something clicked and and that happened yeah. to you and yeah, yeah. it was it my was, goodness hey yeah thank goodness honestly because yeah. So, well, should we go on to the next? Your first. Yeah, go for it. I'm loving the preparation here. Because, I know. Yeah. I'm on track because my brain just goes, I think I've got a bit of ADHD as well. So, that's all sort of just. So, I have to yeah, keep. Yeah, no, go for it. So, this is where things get really. This is where my story goes really good, actually. Oh, this so, is so, um, so the first 100 days was like an emotional roller coaster. And I can I, imagine. Yeah, I can quite understand why every time I got in my car, I'm sobbing, like literally sobbing my heart out. Oh. And and I was just like driving, because I do a lot of driving backwards and forwards. So every little bit I was driving backwards and forwards, I'd get into the car and <laughs> just literally sob. And I didn't want to tell my family that this was happening. But then it got to the point where I was walking in and puffy-eyed and I just kept crying and some days I would feel amazing, like absolutely amazing, like on this pink cloud, like, look at me, I love, I'm loving life, I'm loving nature, and oh, I'm so, like, sober and gorgeous <laughs> and all of this stuff. And then the next day I'd just be like, boom, like rock bottom, just, I can't get out of bed, I'm so tired, just crying. And then, um, so what happened was I then thought, all of these tears were coming and I was like something something's not right inside and I was like right I want to go back to my mom's grave and this is where the story gets really good so um my husband was like yet again it was my husband he went I'm never going to remember where it was Pearl because it was like 18 19 years ago we went he went so I'll bring up and find out where the plot was so I was like okay because he he worked from home so he could do that while I was at work so then for some reason my husband said ask who owned the grave which we probably didn't do when we did originally go there and so they said this lady's name which was Susan um with my mum's maiden name so who's this Susan oh wow because obviously my mum and dad were married it was only a short time they were married but they were married and um so I was like this must be her sister 
And when I did go to, I've missed this back out as well. When I did go to the grave originally, my nan was buried with her. She died six years after her daughter, which was a really young age as well, because my mum died at the age of 23. Goodness me. Wow. Yes. And then her mum, my nan, died um, when six years later. So I think she was in her 50s, my nan. So she died young as well. But anyway, so I had this name. And I was like, right, okay. So that put a lot of my focus in sobriety. In the uh, in the first six months, this is all I did was find, try and find this person. So I was doing all of this stuff. I found where she lived for a very good friend of mine who helped me on her computer because she works in a bathroom shop. And you know when you can do like credit checks on people? Mm-hmm. So she did this credit check for me. And um, she was like, oh, my God, Pearl, I, f- I found I found this lady. No way. She lives 20 minutes down the road from you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I was getting really excited. And then she said, so she went, right, let me go into an in-depth report now. So she did that for me. I hope she don't mind me saying that. Um, but she, <laughs> she did this in-depth report. And then she rang me back and she went, Pearl, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I went, what? And she went, she's dead. And I oh was like, God. no. But I still didn't know that she was my auntie at this point. So I was like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do now? And I sort of fell dead on the trail. So then one day I'm sitting there and I was like, I'm just going to Google search her name. I haven't done that. So I've been on, um, you know, Heritage and all yeah. of this stuff. And I was yeah. doing all this stuff every day, like trying to find information. So then that was my obsession, literally. Then I was like, right, I've come to the dead end. So I Google searched her name. And then it, this thing comes up saying that something about her will on the on the actual internet. And I was like, but there was probate. So I rang my friend and she went, right, go on .gov. Put her name in .gov because if there's probate, it'd be something on .gov. So I was like, right. So the next thing, I'm on .gov and it says, would you like to print out her will? And I went, Oh, you could do all this. Yeah, didn't So, yeah. I was like, oh my God. So, literally, within two minutes, I had to pay for about five pounds on my card. I'm printing out this will, who I still didn't know was my aunt at this point. So, I'm printing print it out and I'm like, oh my God. So, then I'm like, right, there's a man in there called John and he's in Ireland. And he's my uncle. Oh, my goodness. So I'm like, how do I get hold of this guy to see? So what are the odds of this? So I wrote this letter. I found her back to my friend with her computer system, <laughs> doing her little checks. And she I love this like, detective friend. Yeah, she was <laughs> like, oh, my God, Pearl, there is a John that lives 10 minutes down the road from Susan. It's got to be her brother. It's got to be your uncle. So I wrote this heartfelt letter to this guy, and I recorded, posted it. So I could see when he got it and he got it the next day. I was like, oh my God, he's got the letter. He emailed me back straight away and went, I'm not your man. I'm really sorry. I'm not your man. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh, he broke with all the highs and lows of this story. Like my heart. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he doesn't want to talk to me. Oh my God. So then I was like, oh, so then I can't remember. Was that was that before the wheel. Anyway. So then I was like, right, I've got the executor's names on the will. So I emailed the executor, find his email address, more detective work. Then I emailed him and I was like, look, there's this man in Ireland. And I think he's my uncle. I'm 99% sure he's my uncle. And he was like, but I don't know who you are. I'm an executor of will. I can't give out personal information. I was like, you are my last hope. Please, please, please be 
send this email for me. Just I'm going to send you an email. Just forward it for me, please. And he was like, okay. And he did. And then two days later, I'm sitting in bed and I get this phone call, Ireland. And it was about quarter to 10 at night. And I was like, oh, my God. So I've answered. Hello. 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 Is that you? Sorry about the Irish accent there. (laughs) My uncle. It was my my uncle. It was my uncle. And he was like, is that you? And I said, he said, oh, my God. I cannot believe this. So did did he know about you then? Well, he did know about me, but he lived in Ireland. and He's got his own story, but he was in Ireland and my mum was in England. So, and at the time when my mum died, he was in Ireland and he's got his own thing going on. So, but he tried, him and my auntie did try to find me, but because I was a child, my, so then I, yeah, I'm, I'm skipping bits here. So basically he rang me and I was like, I'm coming to see you. He was like, oh, I feel like I need to talk to you face to face. And I was like, right, I'm coming. So within two weeks, I booked the flight and I was on plane to Ireland with my husband. And we were going to this strange person's house. And I never had any photos of my mum. And he gave me oh, he gave me a photo of my mum. Oh, look. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. Just that, yeah, just so that people understand what we're looking at, that you're showing me a picture <laughs> of your mum. Um, that's unbelievable. I feel a bit emotional, to be honest. Looking I know, because like, I didn't what? know what she looked like. And yeah. I didn't, yeah. So, and to have a photo of her with me, he gave me about 10 photos, no, about 10 family photos. And then I think there's three of us together. Oh, so, is that you um, in the picture? Yeah, that's me. Oh, right, can I see it again? I'm sorry, please. I need to just, I need to. You see? Oh my God, you look like her. Oh my God, that's just incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> I, that is. She's so young. She's so I know. young. She was 21 when she had me and oh, she wow. died at 23. So, um, yeah, so he kind of told me a bit of stuff and I was like, okay. So then I then did a bit more detective work and I found three of her friends. Because she didn't live, she was a local girl. She lived down the road from where I live now, which is yeah. mad. So I found three of her friends. They told me a lot of information, some not so nice about my dad, which was really hard to take as well, because my dad was a bit of a boy. They got married young at 21. No, yeah. No, she had me at 21. They got married at 18. Right. And um, I think he was a bit of a ladies' man. And then he ended up leaving her and she brought me up on her own for those first three years and um then she left me with her sister and her my nan and granddad were meant to take custody of me but then my dad found me and took me so I guess that's why my dad never wanted to tell me because I think he felt a lot of guilt himself yeah and I never really thought about it from his point of view it's only until recently when I went to see like um like a medium healer lady, which was really so helpful. It's probably better than the therapy that I had, what she told me, um, that, you know, my dad went through a lot and I never thought of it from his point of view. And also my mum went through a lot. She was obviously mentally ill, you know, and, and um, yeah, so then my uncle 
came back at Christmas and stayed at my house. So he came this Christmas and we actually visited. He wanted, I didn't really want to go, but he, I think he found it hard to deal with. Mm. And we went to the building that she jumped off, um, which was a high rise building in Wandsworth. And when I say high rise, it's like 20 floors high, like um, a council building. And to go to that, yeah, and stand at the foot of it was just horrific. Yeah. So that was my first 100 days of sobriety. Finding out I had an uncle and cousins and, um, yeah, and that also led me to my auntie's church. So my aunt was a really big churchgoer. Um, She actually lost her leg through rheumatoid arthritis, so she was in a wheelchair and she had a big part in this church. So I, when I got sober, after I found out about my uncle and I found out more about my mum and I had a picture about my mum from her friends, they told me what she was like and that she loved a mascara and that she used to go out dancing every now and again. And they told me, they, they built the picture of my mum, which was so nice. Um, and they couldn't believe that I'd found them as well. Um, oh, I'm just going to track then. Um, yeah, so oh, what was I saying? Yeah, so basically they built this nice picture and, um, yeah, uh, I've gone off track of what I was saying. Yeah. But it's been it's been amazing. Oh, yeah, the church. So I then just said to my husband, I felt this real urge to go to church. And I was like, I really want to go to church. I really want to go to church. And he was like, well, why don't you go to your aunt's church? Like, maybe oh. you can meet someone there. So I did. I went on my own. And this church is not your average church going like get dressed up they've got a band like they're really like cool laid-back people and I love it I go every Sunday now oh that's amazing and I I met her best friend I turned up and I was like they're like have you been before I was like no I was really scared to go and do this and they were like I said oh do you know anyone called Susan she died three years ago and they went oh her best friend's over there and then I ended up going back to her house after church and telling her everything. And she was just like, oh, my God. And now I go to church every Sunday because I, oh. I find I'm getting a lot out of it. And like yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I went and they just said something. And it just, the thing that they said really resonated with me. And I just cried and cried. And all of these big fat tears came out. And I didn't hold back. And no, you know, normally if you cry in public, you get embarrassed and you're like, oh, it's a little tear, quick hide. These these tears were just coming. And I feel like it was such a release. Yeah. And to me, I said to my friends, that church is better than therapy. I'm telling you now, if I can go there and get that even just once a month, that is worth yeah. its weight in gold. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what's so beautiful about that as well? That um you know, we talk so much about when you stop drinking, you have to change your life, you have to do different things, you have to push yourself yeah. out of your comfort zone. You wouldn't have done these things. No, I wouldn't have. All. I was blocking it all. So I wouldn't yeah. have. Literally and stopping drinking was like t- I was pulling a tap out the side of my head and everything just come, coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And then just I haven't I haven't been one of these major gym persons I haven't been a cold water um, person I haven't been a you know cyclist I haven't done any of the physical things that most people do in sobriety but what I have done is I have unpacked all of that stuff and I've dealt with that and that to me and to have a picture of my mum holding me holding you as well yeah holding me is just amazing and to find out who she was as a person whereas I never knew anything about her so I would never have done that had I not got sober yeah 
it's, it's, it's utterly life-changing isn't it yeah. I mean that is yeah I mean and this you know and there's also there's just there's so much kind of pain and heartbreak in the first yeah. part of yeah. your life it's so nice now that you've kind of gifted yourself the second part of your life really? and it, you're in this great place and yeah, yeah. building your confidence and yeah you look really happy to me you. you know you're so smiley <laughs> I work with my braces as well yeah. um, no honestly I I I feel that I'm still on a journey don't get me yeah. wrong I, I have days when sometimes all I do is think about it and another thing that happened I forgot to add is in that six months I decided that I wanted to find her um to have some sort of report on what had happened so I emailed um, the um, the council of Westminster of where she died, and they, on the day of her anniversary, because I didn't know the exact dates and everything, so I really wanted to celebrate her um, her death. I wanted to go to the grave. Oh, and I've got another thing. I've got so many things. When I found her grave, when I went back to it, it was really decrepit. It had fallen over. And it was black and you couldn't see any of the words. So I got it. Um, I asked my uncle John, my uncle John, um, wow. if I could um, get it put right, like get it cleaned and leveled and everything. And he was like, yeah, of course. And I said, can I have ownership of it? So I transformed it. So it yeah. was this black little stone that had all fallen down. Now it's white and it's all back to glory. Wow. Um, and I forgot what I've gone off track again. What was I going to say? Oh. It might come back yeah. to you. It might come back to you. Um, so hold on to that thought, literally. Yeah. It'll come back. Yeah. Um, so t- just talking about, you obviously read the Alan Carr um, yeah. book, The Easy Way. Um, yeah. What else did you do to support yourself? I mean, oh, yeah. I know obviously you did a lot of unpacking and that work. I mean, yeah. to be honest, I think it's amazing that in a year you've done so much of that work because sometimes yeah. it takes people a year to settle into sobriety and then they can maybe get into. So I think you've, you know, you've obviously really thrown yourself into that. And like you say, it's been therapy for you and that's fantastic. Were there any other things specifically that yes. you... I um, literally, I know a lot of people say this, but I um, declare and share. So when I got sober, I... On my old Instagram, what my my personal Instagram, I started sharing a lot of your stuff because you were the first person that I followed. So I was sharing everything that you were sharing. And at first people were like, oh, my God, look, Party Girl Pearl is not drinking. So everyone's happy at first. Like, yeah, look at her. And then they got bored of it because it started to go on and on. And then I thought, God, I think I'm really boring everyone. Like, they're not sober. This is not a sober community. I was just putting all this sober stuff out. And my husband went, I think you're like putting a bit, bit, a lot of stuff out there, pal. And no one's really interested. And I was like, yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> you needed to find your tribe. Didn't yes, you? <laughs> I did. I did. So then I was like, oh, sod this. So I then thought, right, I'm going to make a sober account. And that massive, I still lurked in the background for ages. And I I became, um, I, I had my sober account, but I wasn't on private. And then I just thought, no, do you know what? I'm still sharing all this stuff. It's not going anywhere. And it was something that I was so passionate about, the whole Instagram thing. So then I became my sober, sober pearls of wisdom. 
And then I just, that really helped me because there were so many other people like, oh, yeah, you're doing amazing. You're doing great. So my tip would be declare and share and tell everyone, make yourself accountable and get on. If you like social media, which I did anyway, get on it and and get in the sober community because they are so lovely. Yes. I've made a real genuine connection, especially with one person. But um, I've made other connections on there as well. And everyone's in the same boat and everyone cheers yeah. each other along. And it's just so lovely. Um, and also my other thing was podcasts. Um, yeah. When Especially in early sobriety, even now, I listen to one a week or two a week. But yeah. in early sobriety, like on that Friday night when I went drinking, I would go, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Oh. So I'd put on a podcast, go for a walk. And then I'd come yeah. back and be like, right, I'm chilled now. Yeah, it can, it can do so much <laughs> to shift your mindset podcast yeah, can't it and obviously what everyone else says as well is if you like reading read 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 feed your brain because that is just the best thing you can't unlearn everything you've learned and yeah that's yeah. it yeah just get on it just get just just indulge yourself into it you know absolutely immerse yourself in yeah, it immerse it yeah the yeah I said something wrong there sorry no, but yeah. no not at all not at all <laughs> it's um yeah, it's so it's so interesting um, your story because e- even then, when you were talking just before before those tips and things, I was thinking it's so nice what you did with your mum's grave and making yeah. it all making nice. it all lovely. And it it made me think about um, with my own mum who died. Uh, she died seven years ago. We were estranged, so I, I haven't really had an adult relationship with my own mum. Um, and I don't know where she's buried. Like I've never seen her grave and, you know, I've, I've just, I've, I guess I've never really, I've never really thought about it. Yeah. Never really thought about it. Um, and it's sort of, it's made me think that one day I would like to go and see, try and find where she's buried. I know she's buried somewhere in Lincolnshire. So somewhere in the, in the East Midlands, but I do think actually um, that it must you must make quite a lot of peace in that yes, process. Definitely. I um, think you have to forgive because if you don't forgive, I spent a lot of my life being so angry, really angry. Um, yeah. I'd flip at anything, and I think forgiveness is everything. It really is. It, it really freedom. is. Forgiveness is freedom because if you if you're walking around like a ball of anger, and you've got and I, I have a lot of I don't like my stepmom at all, but I've had to try and learn to forgive her because I don't talk to her. But in my in myself, I've had to try and learn to forgive her because if not, I'm just angry and I can't be like that. You know, I don't want to portray it on my my family. have had enough of my angry outbursts in the past. You know, and I've since I've got sober, I'm like, no, no I need to forgive. I need to forgive my mum. I need to forgive my dad. I need to forgive my stepmom. I need to forgive them all in order for me to move on in my life. Because otherwise, it's my life now. And I'm still worrying about them. And I shouldn't be because although they brought me into the world, they brought a lot of trauma. But I can't keep blaming them. I've got to yeah. get on with my life. Now. And I feel sobriety has definitely given me that. Yeah, it's given you that gift. I feel the same as well um, in that I carried a lot of anger about my negative relationship with my mom and, you know, all the things in my childhood and all that stuff, blah, blah. Um, and I I just didn't like how that sat in my body. I didn't like how that felt. 
And when I stopped drinking, that helped me to reframe my perspective. And one of the things that, you know, my mum being a very big drinker and, you know, most most of the difficult situations I was in as a kid is because of her drinking. Um, But when I stopped drinking, I was able to look through a different lens and to look back and to see things from her point of view just as you were saying about your dad you know you reframed you looked at the world through your dad's eyes I managed to look through the world with my mum's eyes and and you know see things from her point of view and that she was very young and she was quite unhappy I think in her life and you You don't know maybe what trauma she had going on exactly yeah exactly she had a difficult relationship with her parents and she was quite lost and she drank because she was in pain I suppose and she didn't mean to do the things that she did Mm. she didn't she you know she was here today she would probably we would both probably say if we had the opportunity to do it again we would both do it differently exactly and that is very healing isn't it that is very healing to be but again it's something that I'd never even thought of when I was drinking no me neither it's just running away from it all yeah, that was, the, and that I feel was, like I've broken a cycle in a yes. way because I feel like I was carrying around all that hurt and pain and yes. drinking and, you know, and now I feel like I'm being, my kids, I hate to say it, they've seen me drunk, they've seen me be stupid and I, I can't take that back. But what I can do now is they're proud of me. They're proud of oh, their mum. That's so they're nice. People, my mum don't drink. Oh, really? Yeah. And they're proud of it. And that makes me proud, you know. And I say, who do you prefer, drunk mummy or sober mummy? And they go, sober mummy all the time. Yeah. And do you feel um, as well, like, because of those sorts of uh, wins, if you like, in sobriety, you know, all of those little moments, they build up your self-esteem, don't they, and your self-confidence in yourself. Do you feel like you're managing to let go of the the weight of that feeling of not being good enough and Um, and all that stuff. I still get mum guilt. I think everyone, every mum, whether you're sober, drunk, whatever, every mum has mum guilt. Um, And I do suffer with that quite a lot because sometimes I feel like I don't know if I am being the right mum because I never had a mum and my stepmom was horrible. So that I do still find hard um, at times. But I definitely feel that I have become myself. Like, I didn't know who I was before because I drank from the age of 14. So I was wearing a mask and I wore that mask and it was only until taking it off. I'm like, actually, I don't really like that. And I don't like doing that. And actually, I just enjoy staying at home and going on nature walks. You yeah. know? Isn't that so powerful, though, to just be able to stand there and say, God, I really like who I really am, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I like, nice, who, I like the person I'm becoming. Um, I need to work on the mum stuff and that's something I think I'll always struggle with because of what happened to me. And I just hope that I can be the best mum that I can. And I know I definitely can be by being sober. And yeah. I, would never, I know for sure I would never go back to drinking. Yeah, yeah. It's changed my life so much, not drinking. You've done so amazingly well, Pearl. Like you should be so proud of yourself. I am. I am so proud. It's brilliant. It's yeah, makes me have a tear in my eye to be (laughs) honest. Because um, because it's so easy, I think, to it's so easy to be a bit a victim, 
and, and when is. you've had a lot of trauma and you know at the end of the day I, 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 I don't meet many people that haven't had difficult moments in their life obviously some people it's probably a spectrum some people more so than others and I think you are one of these people that has had a lot of, yeah. of trauma yeah. and a lot of things on your plate I feel like I'm similar I, I've I've had things on my plate as well but you know it's not about it's not a competition is it? it's not about like you're more than me or me or I'm more than you the thing is you have made a decision that has changed not only your life but of but all the lives around you and everybody, mostly yourself, will be eternally grateful for that. And to think that all you have to do in a way is just put down the alcohol. It, mm. you know, it's it is a big thing. I'm not I'm not trying to undermine yeah. people that are struggling at the moment with stopping drinking, but you have that choice, you have that power. And it is difficult. You might spend six months crying every day in your car driving to and but you know it might that maybe is what it takes but in a relatively short amount of time a year you have completely transformed your life and and yeah like I said you just you're bursting through the screen you know you're so full of energy and joy it's really lovely to see and I just think yeah these are the stories that they just they're life-changing and I just I thank you so much for your sharing thank you and it's like the I've quickly hit on what that lady said in the church she went she was talking I'm not sure if she was talking about God or not but she was like that he had these chains on and she said and then the chains got cut off and all he had to do was shake his arms and then the chains would fall off but he didn't because he was so used to the weight of the burden of those chains that he didn't realize all he had to do was that and that's exactly how I felt my life was and that's what made me cry because I felt like I was a victim of all of the childhood trauma and I was still yeah. carrying it around but all I had to do was go like that and shake yeah. my arms and then yeah. then it would come come off and that's what really hit me and made me cry so much and you know there's that quote as well isn't there that some you know we don't the best days are the best days are still ahead of us. So who knows what Paul's going to do in the next 5, 10, 15 years? I know. You know. Like I, you might I, do... I just hope that my story can help somebody. I really wanted to do this story because I love your podcast and I do listen to it. Some relate and some don't, you know. But I just felt like if I came on here, I was like, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? And the reason I'm doing it is because I think it's quite cathartic to tell your story, especially when you've come through through the other side and I feel like I'm coming out now of the other side and I'm like blossoming now and I just feel like if anyone has been through even just one of the things that I've been through that there is light at the end of the tunnel you can pull yourself out of that dark hole like I did and you can get through it and you can do it and you can change your life and that is the most important message why I wanted to do this podcast Oh, and I'm so grateful for it as well, because I think I think this um, podcast and, and podcasts like these, you know, where people are just telling their stories of pain and blossoming coming out the other yeah. side. I think they are they are life changing to some people. I know certainly people reach out to me all the time and say, um, yeah, if it wasn't for listening to so-and-so on the podcast I probably wouldn't have got sober and things like that you know it's like wow that really is <laughs> that's really yeah. changing lives and yeah. and I also think when you go through this sort of stuff you know where you've had I don't know you've had your issues and 
especially obviously you you know in drinking and you get sober I I do think you want to share and you want to give back like I think that becomes part of the healing is to actually then try to help others others. yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah yeah no it's lovely so how can we find you and follow uh your journey okay so I am on Instagram so I'm at sober underscore pearls of wisdom or one word you like the name love it <laughs> love it yeah brilliant um amazing uh thank you so much oh thank you so brave and open and I yeah. feel really vulnerable for putting myself out there but I think that's another thing in sobriety you've got to lay yourself bare and just unpack and yes. get it out there it's the best yeah. way yes absolutely and I also think as well that when you um when you do push yourself out of your comfort zone and you are vulnerable and and other people see that you you generally get a really positive response to that vulnerability like people are they they just they find it heartwarming and then they give back to you and then that gives you the confidence to do it again you know yeah I do I've always worn my heart on my sleeve you know I feel like um that's just the person I am I just wear my heart on my sleeve and say oh it's so yeah Oh, you're lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody else um, who's, who's listening to this podcast and who's supporting it. And until next time, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in being a guest, please contact me directly on Instagram by sending a message to at Sassy Sober Mum. You can also find helpful tools and resources on my website, sassysobermum.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to spread the love, please like, share and rate the podcast. I really look forward to next time. See you then.